0: morning, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10 Hebrews chapter 10. and to keep you guessing I am not Pastor Jim My name is Stephen, and I serve here as one of the pastors and am grateful to be able to look into God's word together with you today. Again, welcome to our guests. We're so grateful to have you with us to hear. Of our God, to see His people join together in praising and glorifying His name. And of course, to our church family, it's always good to see you and to be together to worship our great God, to recognize who He is and what He has done for us, His people. Fear, suffering, doubt, anxiety, sickness. Laziness, apathy, discontentment, and subtle errors. Any of these can cause us to waver and stumble in our belief in the gospel. We don't set out to waver. We don't plan to doubt. But the busyness and the responsibilities of daily life pull our attention away from gospel realities. We become engulfed by the news that we read and hear. We listen without care to the subtle errors that creep into our podcasts. We watch shows and movies without much thought of the grotesque error and mischaracterations of our Savior Jesus Christ and His truth. We view fellow believers in the midst of great suffering, our own church family with difficulties both great and small, and we begin to question what God says. We wonder about the veracity of the gospel message and all Jesus is and claims to be. We easily, so easily, recoil and pull back from strong commitment to Jesus Christ and his truth as we face the relentless onslaught of challenges to our faith. It's tiring. It's wearisome. It becomes a burden. And it's overwhelming. And we have a few different ways we respond to this. We have some of us who we sit silently and we, we, we doubt, and those doubts grow. We don't talk with members of this body. One of the very important means of grace to us from God. But we let that doubt grow. We don't go to his word. And that doubt continues to grow. Others of us, we're a little bit more bold and brash. And, and it's as though we raise our fists to God and we say, we dare you to come down from heaven and show us that you're real and your word is true. We're like Thomas, who doubts and demands to see proof. Then we have others who respond as the writer of Hebrews tells us to. So please join me now in Hebrews chapter 10, where we'll begin our reading in verse 19. The Bible says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, For he who promised is faithful. This is the eternal and living word of God to us. In verse 22, we're told to draw near to God, a precious, precious reality for those of us who are the people of God. God says, draw near. Those of you who are so stricken in your consciences by your sin, because you know that we don't know all that you know about how dirty of a sinner you are, and that, if you let it, can keep you up at night. The guilt and the shame can overwhelm you and even cause you to make bad choices, But what we find here is what the writer of Hebrews has done is he said, your heart, your conscience, if you are in Christ Jesus, it's been sprinkled clean. So come. Seems kind of an interesting quandary for us, doesn't it? I bet if somebody of great importance in life invited you to stop by their office or their company any time, and they left an open invitation to you, most of us would not probably take that open invitation. I feel this way when people invite me to their house and say, stop by any time. And I think to myself, I'll stop by any time. You text me or call me and say, stop by at this time. But you say the invitation is open, and I think, okay, I'm gonna wait till you actually make me come over, right? Because I don't feel right about just popping in. Maybe I should, but I don't. But this is God who is saying to us, you always have not only an open invitation, but a command. Draw near. Go to God. What is so wrong with us that we would fail to avail ourselves to the very one who created us in all of the circumstances of life? When you experience success and joy, when you experience failure and hurt, when you know sickness, when you know suffering, when you're confused, when you're unsure, draw near to God. Then we come to verse 23. We draw near to God, we go to God, and in verse 23, the writer tells us, hold on to gospel faith. Hold on to gospel faith. Now, hold fast is to hold on tightly, to grasp and not let go. It's not the hold on, I'm coming when you're rushing to get the door because the doorbell keeps ringing and you haven't gotten there quick enough. This is the hold on, your life depends on it. There's urgency here. This is the picture of the little boy who clings so tightly to his mom as she tries to put him in the nursery on Sundays. Uh, She's in a hurry. He's realizing what's about to happen, and there's this cling that happens, right? Um, You can see it every Sunday right out here in the main lobby. To hold fast means to cling, to endure, to persevere. Don't let go. And he uses this phrase, the confession of our hope. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. This confession of our hope is the gospel and all the truth about who Jesus Christ is. It is nothing less than the reality that I am a desperate sinner in need of Jesus, the only Savior. It's the reality that Jesus Christ is fully God and was fully man in his time here on earth. It is belief in the reality of all that Jesus is. Lord, Master, Redeemer, Rescuer, Savior, and so much more. It is belief in the reality of all that Jesus has done. He came to earth. He lived for 33 years On this earth, in absolute perfection to the law of God, in submission to the Father's will. It's the understanding of his innocence, his death by brutal sinners on a cross he didn't deserve, but willingly submitted himself to in order to pay for the sins of all who put their trust in him as Lord and Savior. It is the great reality of his resurrection. Far too often, we just gloss over the resurrection. I think sometimes it's a little much for our minds to handle, right? Like, this, this is a strange thing. Those of us who've been to funerals, we understand. We don't expect when we go to a funeral that somebody's going to, you know, after three days, get out of the coffin and come back and start going to work and things. Right? Like, that, that's an insane thought. So I think the re- resurrection to us is such a foreign concept, because it seems too fantastic, but the resurrection holds for us great power and realities as believers. So, our, the confession of our hope is the reality of his resurrection, the single act in all of history where Jesus conquers death, where Jesus conquers the bondage of sin in your life and mine, and where he creates for all humanity for all time hope forever from the darkness, from the evil. That so often constitutes our world. The confession of our hope is the powerful realities of the greatness and the goodness of our wonderful God. Who he is, what he has done, and all he has accomplished for all who put their faith in him. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our hope. So for believers, this is a call to continued belief. It's a call to stability, a call to endurance and security. But for those who've never placed their faith in Jesus, this is your invitation to come, to come to know this great God and Savior, who as we sang today, all those sufferings, all those sorrows cease, and every joy is satisfied. That can't happen outside of Christ. So Jesus says, come to me and find rest for your weary soul. Come to me and find forgiveness. Turn from yourself and your sin and repentance. Turn to me. So he gives you an invitation today. For those of us who are believers, we came to faith in Jesus. And so now we live day by day in faith, believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the only Savior. We continue to hold fast to the gospel through God's word, the Bible. As a church, this is one of the reasons we believe preaching the word should be primary. As one author rightly identifies, preaching should be seen as part of the worship of the church and crucial to its life and health. If the church is to hold fast to the confession of their hope without wavering, the word of God must receive ample attention in the life of the church. As such, it should be done when God's people gather corporately and serve as a central reason for their gathering. I want you to think again on this concept that continues to overwhelm my brain. There is very, very little in this life right now, that you can take in the life to come. Very little that will be there. The souls of people will be there. And God's eternal word will be there. Can you believe that? The very word that you have on your screen or in your hands today, that will be here in this life and that will be with us for all eternity. Now, if God views it that importantly, how can we do different? If he says it matters that much, why would we see it as any less value than the one who gave it to us, that we would know him, that we would love him and follow him? So we hold fast to the gospel through the very word of God. And we also seek God through prayer, through fellowship with his people and submission to all he says. We follow God in the everyday moments of life, gladly giving our allegiance to Jesus, not just when we come to church, not just when we're at church activities, not just when we're around those church folk, but when no one else is watching. Our allegiance is to Jesus, the only Savior. Now we might have thought the writer of Hebrews here would use the word faith instead of hope. Seems a little curious, but the intentional use of the word hope really points us to the reality of the gospel. That our faith, our Lord, our God, and all that he says is true and alive. Think about this. We don't serve a dead Savior. We serve a living Lord who sits at the right hand of his Father right now. He is not dead, but alive. This hope points us to the reality of a life forever with Jesus. This isn't hoping for a grand family vacation, though that would be fun. This isn't hoping for a promotion, though those are always pleasant too. This isn't wishful thinking, maybe I'll do better on the next test. This is the reality that Jesus is Lord and he fulfills all of his promises to his people. This is confident expectation that the same God who has kept his promises in the past will also keep all the promises he has made for the future. See, hope and faith are intertwined. The Apostle Peter speaks of this living hope when he says to us, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, our faith and our hope, they're connected. Hebrews 11 demonstrates that faith, hope, and endurance are all interconnected. As, as one author puts it, it is a chapter of hope no less than of faith. So, chapter 11 of Hebrews, if, if you flip there, you'll find it's what we typically refer to as the hall of faith. Those men and women who put their confidence in God and his promises, and they didn't even see them fulfilled in their lifetime, yet they believed and they endured. So, as one author says, it's a chapter of hope, no less than of faith. The patriarchs and saints of old who did not in their lifetime see the fulfillment of the promises that had been given to them died in hope precisely because they died in faith. In the midst of severe testing and adversity, they did not waver. The constancy of their faith attested the firmness of their hope because the living God has promised we, like them, have this living hope. If you look again at verse 23, you'll see the author includes this phrase without wavering. This is being firmly footed, sure-footed. It gives us a clear picture of being anchored And stable. Not sliding off the rocks on the trails as you traverse Jones Gap State Park. But the sure-footedness of the mountain goat that always seems to amaze us by their inability to stumble or slip. It doesn't mean, however, we'll be sinless and perfect in this life. We're going to struggle through trials. We're going to have to put doubt to death with God's truth again and again. We're going to have to wrestle with our sin, putting it to death as the Apostle Paul tells us to. But without wavering means we'll endure suffering, sin, and the entanglements of this life by God's grace. Without wavering means we'll keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and the hope we have only in Him so we will be secure. It's the tree. Psalm 1 talks about, right? Firmly planted by the river that has the unending resource of water, nutrients, to make it stable, strong, and unmovable. It's the unchanging, unyielding character of God who the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 13 is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, isn't that a blessed truth about Jesus Christ? about our God, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. Now, we need to change. I think all of you would be grateful to know that I am changing. It's not always as fast or always in the the same direction that I need to be, right? But I think we'd all be happy to say, let's not let him stay the same. Like, there needs to be some change happening in that man's life. And so we're all grateful that we change because we need to change, we don't want our God to change think about the stability that gives to you in your life when when you're uncertain of what's going to happen at work when you're uncertain about the uh, uh, family finances and how those are going to work out when you're unsure about the health situation and the sickness that you face Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever And so we stand firm. We're unmoved by the cultural winds that constantly blow. It doesn't matter that our culture finds God's truth to be antiquated, irritating, or downright offensive. We're unmoved. False accusations, assumptions, even name-calling do not move us because our feet are firmly planted in the soil of God his truth, and his glorious gospel. I know of a young man just this week whose faith was challenged by a classmate at school. When talking about some just what seemed like mundane things, the student directly asked him, are you a Christian? Do you believe this crazy stuff? And in that moment, they had to make that decision. Will I say I believe? Will I identify with Jesus Christ? By God's grace, I can tell you that they did. That's the culture we live in. But we're not unmoved. I'm sorry, we're not, we're not moved. We're unmoved because of the reality of who God is and that he holds us fast. Now, it's likely that some of the original hearers of this text may have been toying with going back to the old ways of the Old Testament way of living. Things like participating in the sacrificial system, worshiping God in the synagogue, wondering if Jesus really is the Messiah. Because the writer of Hebrews has taken now the first ten and a half chapters to tell them and us of the glory and superiority of Jesus and his work In salvation, he's told us that Jesus is superior to angels. He's told us that he is the supreme high priest. He's told us he's the once for all sacrifice. I didn't notice anybody bringing in their lamb today to be sacrificed up here. Now, we laugh at that, but the reality is we don't have to do that because Jesus is that once for all final sacrifice. So, this was a big big deal to them. A major change. Jesus made one sacrifice, so no more sacrifices are needed. That changed their whole way of thinking about worship. And so now there's no need for the Old Testament sacrificial system because it's been replaced with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now think about this. See if you can identify. The early audience of this text that we're looking at today they were in a culture that was fighting the gospel of Jesus Christ with persecution and social pressure. So the author of Hebrews says, don't waver. Don't go back. But continue in this profession of faith and allegiance to Jesus Christ. Remember all that I've told you. Stand firm in the gospel. In chapter 11, he gives us examples, again, of those who have not wavered, but have continued to trust, even though they face difficulty. Talk about social pressure. Hello, Noah. Right? And they didn't even have social media. Imagine that. I mean, think about how much worse it would have been for the guy. And here he is. The whole culture is against him, mocking him, scorning him, calling him a moron and yet he doesn't waver. He stands firm in the truth. And it's people like Abraham and Moses and Sarah, people like Abel. Then in chapter 12, he says, this great cloud of witnesses who's gone before us, it's like they're cheering us on with their example. You can't help but to read through chapter 11 of Hebrews and find your faith and your confidence in God bolstered as you watch people go through difficulty after difficulty after suffering, and yet they stand firm in God. They believe his promises, though those wouldn't be fulfilled to them until after their death. So it's like they're cheering us on with their example, saying, hold fast, Hold fast to this gospel. Hold fast to this confession of your hope. Run with endurance. Because God is faithful. So, we go to the end of the verse, and we see, for he who promised is faithful. We learn we must trust our faithful God. Trust your faithful God. Because God is trustworthy, we can hold fast. We're too weak for this, aren't we? But He has all strength He gives to enable us to hold on. We're too fragile, but He and His word are unbreakable. We're too anxious, but He gives us faith. He gives us stability, so we never need to doubt or fear. He is our strength, our help, our hope, our refuge. The psalmist tells us he's our high tower. We run inside the high tower and we find strength, stability, and calm. He is our faithful God. Persecution will come, but God is faithful. Temptations will be abundant, but God is faithful. As Romans 8 teaches, what shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Shall tribulation... I mean, listen to this list. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. And just in case you can come up with something that wasn't on the list, (laughs) He's got you. He says, nor anything else in all creation. You can't come up with anything that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The one who gave his own son to secure a relationship with us forever will not be found unfaithful to his promises. He is reliable, dependable. He's completely trustworthy. Again, this is a hard concept for us because the people in our life, so often, though they mean well, they fail us. You might have asked a spouse or child to pick up some things from the store this week on their way uh, back home, and it didn't happen. And so you had to change plans with your meals or something else you're planning to do because that person was, as much as they mean well, not dependable this time, Right? I think this is hard for us because we put our confidence in leaders and rulers and they fail us again and again and again. We're disappointed by them. So to to know that we have a God who's completely dependable and who keeps his word, that's a foreign concept to us. Just don't identify with that because so much in our life is not dependable. In fact, it seems like the only constant in life is that nothing's constant. I think that's a saying somewhere or something. I don't think that's original with me. But when we come to God, we find he's completely dependable. We really can trust him. He's never failed his people. You can look all throughout history and you can see God has never failed his promises, but his people have consistently failed him. But still he loves. But still he fulfills his promise to care, to forgive sin, to meet our needs. But we're so Unworthy. He provides access to a relationship with him. Remember our words? Let us draw near. He provides this access to relationship with him, even though we know just how sinful we really are. We're aghast sometimes at the things that we think and what we realize are our motivations. And we wonder, could God really love me? I know what a rotten scoundrel I am. And yet God says to us, my love is sure. It's steadfast. I love you, so I forgive you. I love you, so I care for you. You are my child, forever mine, and nothing can ever take you from my hand. That's just how secure we are. So God has been faithful to provide for us relationship So our ability to hold fast is rooted in the firm foundation of the faithfulness of God. We can't hold fast if God is unfaithful. We can't hold fast if we're unable to trust God and what He says. But God's promises are reliable, like 1 Thessalonians 5. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And Philippians 1. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. These are precious promises because we know of our doubts. We know of our failures. And sometimes we wonder, can I hold on? And the answer is yes, because he's holding on to you. You have the same power that raised Jesus from the dead available to hold you fast. So we hold fast because of who we are as people redeemed and cherished by our great Savior, Jesus Christ. The winds of change will blow. The hardships are going to come with suffering and pain in abundance. The power of the gospel and its transforming work cannot be stopped. It will be constant because God is faithful. Songwriter bundles these truths all together for us when he says, Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken. I am forgiven. The king of kings calls me his own. Beautiful Savior, I am yours forever. Jesus Christ, he's my living hope. So then, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let's go to him now in prayer. Lord God, you are merciful beyond our understanding. Your kindness to us, we cannot fathom. It's too much to grasp. We confess we are overwhelmed. The evil in our own hearts, the evil in our world. And so we identify with the song, hold us fast we thank you that you will hold us fast when we're stumbling when we're afraid when we're overwhelmed and burdened you keep us you hold us fast thank you for the rich mercies of god to us who are unworthy We pray that you would raise up here in us, your people. A people who know you and who love you and are characterized by firmness to the end. Endurance through difficulty, through suffering, through challenge. People who know, who believe, and not just sing, he will hold us fast you, our great God, be glory, majesty, and dominion, both now and evermore. Amen.